Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hearts, minds switched on, Bibles opened up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, through this entire service, we have invited you to be our honored guest. You're the one that we sing about, rejoice in, sing to and worship. And now you're the one, Lord, that we invite by your Holy Spirit to teach us through your revelation, the Word of God. We're here, Lord, because we want your answers, your truth, without any kind of agenda pushed, just the pure milk of the Word that we might grow thereby, as Peter said. We pray, Father, that you would break through any preconceptions that we might have or walls that we put up and remind us, Lord, of how much you love us by the future that is in store for us. Thank you, Lord, for life that goes far beyond this temporary existence. I pray that we might learn and rejoice and that we might be altered because of what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. You know that if you walk into a store where there's magazine racks, there's publications all about life. In fact, there was, until a year ago, a magazine called Life Magazine that for years gave us little snippets and insights into life all around the world. There's magazines about hobbies, about news, about people, and many of them use the word life. When I grew up, there was boy's life, and then girl's life, and then now there's woman's life. There's a magazine called Mac Life, if you really, really think that Macintosh computers are your life. There's a magazine called Best Life, another one called Natural Life, another one called Vermont Life, and several states have such titles. You'll probably never find a magazine called Death Magazine or Dying Today Magazine or dead people. You'll find people, but it's always living people. You'll never find dead people magazine. Or you'll never find one called Victorian Cemeteries. Or a magazine called Death Week. You won't find that. It's all about living. It's all about life. And the focus of publications, the focus of most everyone, is what goes on here during this life. But we all know that death is a part of life. We all know, though rarely do we think about it, we don't like to think it's so unpleasant that one day the future real estate we'll occupy is in our own homes with an acre or two or much smaller, but just a little plot of land six feet underground. We'll be there, our bodies, unless the Lord returns anytime soon, we'll be there for a long time. Malcolm Muggridge used to say when he was living here on earth, he said, I have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth, and the foot on earth is on a banana peel. 
He knew that life was precarious here. Doesn't matter if we work out, if we eat right, if we take vitamins, count calories, pump iron, stretch our faces back. Eventually, we lose that battle and death will overtake us. There's even a Washington, D.C. undertaker that signs all of his correspondence instead of like we write cordially yours. He always ends his letters, eventually yours. (laughs) Just to remind people where they're all heading. I've done funerals for over 25 years. I've buried hundreds of people, young, younger, middle-aged, old, believers, unbelievers. I've watched many people die over the years, including my own mother this last year. And I've learned a few things in doing that and in watching people die. I've learned that you want to live in such a way so that when you die, you're going to be missed and you're going to be ready for the future without any regrets and without any longings that you should have done something different for the future. I heard a story about three guys. They all died in the same auto accident. They were taken up to sort of an eternal holding tank for uh, orientation. They were all asked this question. That if, if during your funeral, as people are mourning your loss and they're saying things about you and they're, and they're weeping over your casket, what is the one thing you'd like people to say about you? One guy said, well, I'd like them to say that I was a, a wonderful family man and doctor. The second guy said, I, I'd like him to say that I was a great teacher who helped kids out and I loved my wife with all my heart. The third guy thought about it a while and he said, I think I'd like to hear people say, look, he's moving. (laughs) Now there's a guy who lived with some regrets. There's a guy who didn't want to end it all. He wanted to go back. He lived in ignorance and without any assurance. And those are the two things that I want to talk to you about out of this text. I want to talk about the ignorance concerning death and the assurance that as believers we have concerning death. Those two themes emerge side by side in verses 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's look at those verses together. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now those verses that we just read out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will occupy our time this week and next week. 
as we look at a view from death's door. And we want to follow those themes of ignorance and assurance that Paul is writing about. Ignorance concerning death and assurance that we can have concerning death. Because this section will answer many questions that we have. Questions like, we discussed a few of them last week and in that we said we want to answer some of them in this series. What happens at the moment of death? When we die, are we unconscious? Are we what some people call in soul sleep? Since Paul says those who sleep in Christ. Does that mean we're unconscious during that time? When will the resurrection take place? Is it proper to grieve when a Christian, when a believer dies? Or though Jesus Christ triumphed over death by resurrection and promises triumph over death to believers, Jesus said, whoever believes in me will never die. Why is it that Christians still die? When will death eventually be over with? If what Paul said is correct, the last enemy that will be defeated is death. When will that take place? Now, just a little background before we jump in. And again, we're only going to cover part of this tonight, not the whole thing. It'll take at least two weeks to get through it. But here's the deal. Paul, on his second trip, we called it a second missionary journey, stopped by the town of Thessalonica. And there for three successive weekends, Sabbath days, he preached the gospel in the synagogue. People came to faith in Christ. Because of an uproar, a persecution that took place, Paul had to, for his own life, get out of town. But a a body of believers was established there, saved from the Greco-Roman pagan world. Now, they're believers in Christ. Paul had been telling them that Jesus Christ is going to come back. Be ready for him. He could come at any moment. But time passed. And during that time, relatives, friends, loved ones died. And now they're worried. And Paul gets wind of the idea, the fact that they're worried. They're worried because, wait a minute, if Jesus is going to come back and, and, and start his kingdom again here, what about my friends? Well, what about my relatives, those who have died? Will they miss out on all of that? They were panicking because some of the people that they thought would share in that glory have died. And so he writes about that. So let's consider tonight the... The ignorance of death. And again, look at verse 13. That's where we want to camp tonight. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, something that Paul does bring up in this verse that that I do want you to notice is just how widespread ignorance of death is. He's writing to Christians... And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren. Who are brethren? Brethren are Christian believers. Now, you don't tell somebody, look, I'm writing because I want to dispel your ignorance unless there is a level of ignorance among those you're writing to. So even though they were believers in Christ, there was a level of ignorance about death that they held. And it hasn't ceased from that time onward. I read a story about a man who got up every morning and read the newspaper, but he'd always read the obituaries first. Every day he read the obituaries. Finally, he turned to one of his relatives and he says, I just can't figure out how it is that people can die in alphabetical order. (laughs) Well, non-Christians and Christians are 
uninformed or misinformed when it comes to death and dying. I've always loved the little quip about the four-year-old boy with his dad on the beach. Four-year-old boy grabs dad. His dad's a Christian man, been in the church a long time. And the little boy brought his dad over to a dead seagull and said, What happened here? And the dad came up with the dad explanation. The bird died and went to heaven. And so the little boy looked down and looked up at his dad and finally said, Well, then why did God throw him back down? I think that's an excellent question, if you're going to explain it like that. We sometimes don't do a whole lot better when it comes to explaining death and the afterlife. Okay, the people in Thessalonica were surrounded by a culture of ignorance. And I want to explain briefly to you what the Greeks and the Romans thought about death, just so you know how important this statement in verse 13 is. Most of you know that the Greek culture was filled with mythology. They had several gods in the pantheon of deities that they thought existed and believed in. And one of the lesser deities was a god named Thanatos. Thanatos. We get the idea of death from that. Thanatos was the personification of death and mortality. Thanatos was the offspring of two gods... Nix and Erebos, which means night and darkness. And he had a twin brother by the name of Hypnos, where the idea of sleep comes from. According to their mythology, Thanatos despised human beings. And human beings despised Thanatos. And so there are some Greek stories of how certain people cheated Thanatos, cheated death. And we're able to live longer than was expected. Now that's sort of the uh, nutshell of what Greeks believed. The Roman culture displayed as much ignorance as the Greek culture. And that's evidenced by reading some of the tombstones you can still find in Rome today. Go down below the city and there's miles of catacombs. And many of those graves were filled with the the unbelieving remains of, of people who occupied them. Here's a few of the gravestones. Some were apathetic about life and death, and on one tombstone it reads, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Another Roman grave, it's on the tombstone reads, Live for the present hour since there is nothing else. And yet another gravestone that expresses some of the religious superstition that some Romans had reads, I lift up my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. This is what happened when a Roman died. When a Roman citizen died, they laid the body out and they put a coin in the body's mouth, the person's mouth. Now the coin was to pay the fare to a deity called Charon, who was the sort of the, the um, guardian in the underworld, the ferryman in the underworld, who would convey the person's soul across a river, the river Stux. And your soul would take the journey across the river where you would be met by three judges who would demand an account of your life. Three would be impartial. If you were a 
warrior or a hero, your soul was sent to a place called the Elysian Fields or sort of an ancient view of paradise. If you were an honorable citizen, your soul would be ushered somewhere else. If you really perturbed the gods, then you would pay for your misdeeds. You pay off the debt to society only for a period of time. There was never a thought of eternal punishment in the Roman world. So that's the ideology, some of them, that these Thessalonians were surrounded with. So it helps to know that when you read this verse, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The Greco-Roman world was empty, hopeless, bankrupt when it comes to anything eternal. And young believers in Thessalonica, though they heard the gospel and rejoiced in salvation and were told that Jesus was going to come, they thought he's going to come like tomorrow, like next week or like next month. And then months go on and then people die and they wonder, well, now what's going to happen? Are they going to cease to exist? That's what we've always been taught. Or have they been taken somewhere else? Those are the kind of questions that filled their minds. So the ignorance was pretty widespread. Now, that ignorance continues today in our modern, sophisticated, educated world, both among believers as well as in the secular world. I think you know a lot of them already. Ask the average person about death, heaven, hell, afterlife, and they'll probably say things like, well, all you got to do to go to heaven is just die. And that's what I've noticed at funerals. There's a person who lived his whole life without any thought about God at all. Suddenly when they die, there's some preacher who will say wonderful things and now they're in heaven. So all you got to do to get to heaven is die. Or people will say, well, if you're good enough, you'll get to heaven. All good people go to heaven or everybody goes to heaven. You know, you'll never hear anybody stand up at a funeral and say, today we're remembering somebody who's not in heaven. You'll never see that at a funeral. It'd be very disturbing to see it. And yet, Jesus taught that only very few people go to heaven, right? He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many enter therein. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and only a few enter therein. So what do people think? Well, the materialist believes in extinction. You live, you die, there's nothing else. No hope to look forward to, no afterlife, nothing at all. Make the best of it, because after death you just cease to exist in complete unconsciousness. Others who are a little more superstitious, more along the New Age lines, will teach absorption, that we're all part of a divine cosmic mind. They'll even call it the Christ mind, and we'll all merge back into that united mind. Whatever that means, though I've read stuff, I still don't get what they mean by it. In other parts of the world, people hold to an animistic belief, tribal religions. That when you die, your soul stays on earth or goes to the underworld where you merge with the souls of your ancestors and you forever, eternally wander without any joy, without any sorrow at all. Hindus believe in reincarnation. That's a pantheistic worldview. It says the soul is recycled from one form to another. It's become very popular in our culture. Though even in my unbelieving days, it did not seem attractive to me. The idea of coming back here 
And going through certain experiences again was not attractive to me. I don't want to go through diapers again. I don't want to do another first date ever again. I don't want to have to take high school English ever again. There's just certain things I'd like to just not do. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, it's over. One of the big causes of ignorance in our culture over the last several years, I'll say 30 years, is a thing called near-death experiences, which used to be more prominent. Doctors will say you, you read less of them because people are more drugged and sedate when they approach death than they were back then. But there are several books about that, especially from the past. Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life, where he interviews several people who have similar experiences. They die, they're pronounced dead, they even hear the pronouncement of their own death. They're out of their body in this temporary state. They meet friends, they meet relatives, and and some of them even, most of them even, talk about this being of great light that they saw who accepted them, no matter how they lived, no matter what they had done, this being of great light is waiting for them. Of course, I cringe when I read that because the Bible does say that Satan is an angel of light and he masquerades as such. And he would love people to live in a cavalier, nonchalant way all through their life with no worry about eternity at all. Probably the most famous books was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 straight weeks was a book years ago by a woman named Betty Eady, a book called Embraced by the Light. One of the unique things about her experience is she said she saw herself pronounced dead, she went out of her body, and she met Jesus Christ, she said. But when you read her account, it's not the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. In fact, This Jesus says we're not sinful people that need redemption. In fact, all of us were spirit beings that actually helped God in the original creation of the earth. So you have a lot of these stories where people read them and go, wow, here's a person who's been there. They they were on the threshold, they saw, and now they wrote about it. But you're only getting part of the picture. You're, you're not getting all of those other experiences that nobody wants to write about. You go, what are you talking about? Well, there was a book put out by a cardiologist named Dr. Morris Rowlings, associate professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee. He, he was not a believer at all in anything supernatural, didn't believe in heaven, didn't believe in hell, until he watched hundreds of his own patients die and come back. And he wrote a book called Beyond Death's Door, in which he wrote, among other things, these words. I'm thoroughly convinced that there is life after death. And that there are at least as many going to hell as going to heaven. The turning point in my own concepts occurred when a patient experienced cardiac arrest and dropped dead right in my office. Of course, that alone didn't change my thinking, but the fact that this 48-year-old was screaming these words, I'm in hell, keep me out of hell, each time he responded to resuscitation efforts, did cause me some concern. (laughs) And then he wrote, 
About 50% of the revived persons told of having gone to a place of great darkness, not light, filled with grotesque moaning and writhing bodies crying out to be rescued from this place with overwhelming feeling of eerie, nightmarish terror. And so then he writes, well, why is it then that those books aren't written about and those stories aren't published, but all the other stories of bright light, friends, relatives, being of light, all of the, why are those published? He says, because people are too embarrassed to admit them and doctors are too embarrassed to make inquiries into such matters. But nobody can afford, he says, to ignore the reports of these patients. I'm convinced that there is a hell and that we must conduct ourselves in such a way as to avoid being sent there at all costs. Good words to heed. Good words to heed. Avoid going to hell at all costs. So Paul writes to dispel Ignorance And the ignorance for the Thessalonian believers was much of what the world around them told them about life and death and the afterlife. And so much of what people today buy is what books are written and what popular philosophers tell them, not what the Bible says. Second thing I want you to notice also in verse 13 is that this ignorance is concerning their loved ones who had died I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, he's referring to Christians who have died, and yet he uses the term fallen asleep. He uses it three times. I want you to notice that's the first one. Verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 15. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now the margin of my Bible, every time it says sleep or asleep, says dead or, uh, or have died. That's in the margin of the Bible. But the word sleep refers to somebody who died. Now, we know that just by you keep reading and you understand it. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, he continues, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead, there it is, the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are asleep is simply a way of saying Christians who have died. So that begs this question. Why does he use that term then? Why does he say sleep? Does that not infer that you're unconscious? Does that mean you're sort of in a suspended state of stasis where you don't know what's going on until the resurrection? Is your soul dormant until then? Answer, no. Sleep is a biblical description and the reason it's used is because of the appearance of the body at death. It looks like a person's sleeping. They're laid out, their eyes have been closed, and it has the physical appearance of being still, of somebody who's being asleep. The word sleep, by the way, in all three of these verses, is the word koimao, koimao, sleep. We use it in a modern term, cemetery, koimaterion, cemetery, a sleeping place. But it refers to those who have died. Now that's what Jesus had in mind. When he spoke about death and a coming resurrection, listen to what he said in John chapter 11 about his friend Lazarus. Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. 
how was he going to wake him up? A resurrection, right? He had physically died and Jesus was going to physically resurrect him. I'm going to go wake him up. It's a description. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. It's right over their head. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's the same description given in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen dies and the New Testament author Luke said he fell asleep. It's a New Testament and even an Old Testament description of a person who dies. In the Old Testament, sometimes kings, it says they slept with their fathers. Or the psalmist, Psalm 13, says, you know, revive my life lest I sleep the sleep of death. So Christians use the term sleep, not only because of the appearance of the body, but because a sleep is temporary. You take a nap, you wake up. And the waking up part is the resurrection. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's funny. When you're a child, you fight sleep. I don't want it. It's time to go to bed. No! It's like the worst thing in the world. You know, it's like the best thing for you. No, please. Let me stay up. Let me just stay up till like four in the morning and ruin my life. No, time to go to bed. Or how about in the afternoon? I want you to take a nap. Oh, do I have to? It's like punishment when you're a kid. The older you get, though, that changes. It's a reward, not a punishment. I get to take a nap? Now, the reason we're never worried about taking a nap or going to sleep at night is because we know we're going to what? Wake up. So a Christian has no more to fear about death than anyone taking a nap. They're going to get up, and that getting up will be resurrection of the body. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16 for a moment. Luke chapter 16. Let's get a very interesting story that will help us tonight and in the weeks ahead to get a handle on. And I say it's a story, it's not a parable, because whenever you read a parable, Jesus will say, hear a parable, or he'll compare something, it's very obvious, but this is a story, not a parable. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, Jesus asserts there was a certain rich man. Now it's a story, not a parable. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the master's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. Everybody goes, ooh, when they hear that. I always hear that one, ooh. That's such a great, licked his sores, gross. So it was that the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets or the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, we could spend a couple weeks on just that parable, but this is, this is what I want you to notice. It's pretty obvious that after a person dies, they're fully conscious. They're fully aware. They're not in some kind of soul sleep. They can feel. They can emote. They're very, very conscious. There's pain as well as comfort. Now notice, this guy is so alarmed by his situation being in Hades, he wants to get word back to his brothers. Notice what he says in verse 28. You just can't pass this by. I've got five brothers. I want them to testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. You know, it's not what some people say, yeah, man, I want to go to hell, and I just can't wait till people come and join me, because we're going to party. Uh-uh. This guy woke up in hell and he's very conscious and he's alarmed and he doesn't want people to follow him there. So, what do we know that happens when a person dies? Or let's narrow that. What happens when a Christian dies? You're going to be very conscious. You'll be comforted. You're going to feel really good if you're in pain now and suffering that bad back or that chronic disease or that horrible situation that will cause your eventual death. You'll be conscious, but you'll be comforted. That's number one. Number two, you'll be immediately in God's presence. Immediately, do not pass go, do not collect $200, just right there in God's presence. We know that because Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not all he said. He was writing a letter to the Philippians. He was in prison. And he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he said, you know, I'm in a quandary here. I'm sort of in this in this straight between two feelings and opinions. On one hand, I want to stay here because it's more profitable for you. I can minister to you. Or I can be with Christ, which is far better, he said, far better. He wouldn't have used those terms if he thought, I'm going to die and death ends it all and my, my, I go into soul sleep for X amount of years to the resurrection. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, it's gain, it's far better because for me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now that's why Jesus said, and this is what Jesus meant when he said, whoever believes in me will never die. Not physical death. You'll go on and experience consciousness and bliss and comfort and the presence of the Lord. So you'll be conscious. You'll immediately be in God's presence. Here's a third thing we know that happens to a Christian when they die. Immediately upon death, 
your soul is perfected in holiness. Your old sin nature is eradicated. Boy, I, I hope you think that's good news. What that means to us is the fight is over, completely over. There's no struggle anymore with flesh and blood, with temptation. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 23, speaks of the spirits of the redeemed in heaven now made perfect. You're in a glorified state at that point. The fight is over. So what will we be doing specifically then in this heaven in this other side in what some theologians and i'll discuss it more next week call the intermediate state because i don't know if you know this or not but you talk about dying and going to heaven there's a lot more to it than just that heaven there's phases of heaven that you'll be experiencing in the future but i want to save something for next time the third thing i want you to notice back in first thessalonians chapter four is that The ignorance, whether it's by the Thessalonians or by the Americans, this ignorance will produce hopelessness. Again, look at verse 13. I do not want you to know, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. See, he didn't say lest you sorrow, period. He believes they're going to sorrow. Everybody does. But lest you sorrow like those who have no hope. Ignorance about death and the afterlife, like the Thessalonians had about their loved ones, would end up in a hopeless kind of a grief. You've heard of good grief? This would be bad grief. Bad grief. Back in the 1960s, uh, LSD guru by the name of Dr. Timothy Leary, everybody who lived back then heard of him. He was very... He thought he was very cool and all the kids thought he was cool and it's all, you know, uh, uh, you know, get high and tune out, drop out, you know, tune in, get all that stuff, take LSD. And he laughed about death. He laughed about the afterlife. And he said that when I die, I plan to have my body and brain cryonically frozen. And so he would always laugh about death. But one of his closest friends who knew him best said these words, even though he joked about death, he is as afraid of dying as anyone, said his friend. Maybe more so, because he really doesn't believe there's anything that comes after this. That's the situation we're talking about here. That's grieving like people who have no hope. For Timothy Leary, for materialists, For a host of others, death is a hopeless end. For a Christian, death is an endless hope. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a whole new phase of existence. The beginning of something much more wonderful in eternity. Now, again, I just want to cover this point. Paul is not saying Christians don't grieve. Just simply, our grief is different. From hopeless people. Hopeless people grieve and people with hope grieve, but we grieve differently than people who are hopeless. You see, when when a believer dies, oh, it's great for the believer, but it's not great for us. You know, I I don't walk up to a funeral and say, quit crying. They're in heaven. What are you worried about? That would be so cruel and heartless. Yeah, it's gain for the person who's in heaven, but it's loss for the people who are still slugging it out on earth without the friendship, without the love of that person. So we can't be cavalier about it. 
The Bible's filled with people who grieved. Jacob, when he thought that his son Joseph was torn by wild beasts, mourned for many days. David, when he heard that his son Absalom was killed, did he go, oh, too bad? He said, oh, my son Absalom, if only I would have died instead of you. And what about Jesus at the funeral of Lazarus? He knew what was coming, and yet he said, it says in there, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Our grief, however, is different. It's filled with hope. And you could, if you wanted to write in the margin of your Bible, this is what hope means here, confident expectation. Confident. Don't, it's not a guy hold, you know, crossing his fingers going, I hope this really works. I hope this faith stuff like pays off. No, the idea of hope here, elpida, elpidas, means a confident assurance or expectation. In other words, it ain't over yet. It's just the beginning. We are assured of resurrection. We're assured of a restoration. We're assured of a reunion. All of the things that Paul will talk about in the next several verses. And that's why he closes out in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And those comforting words are the words we want to look at next time when we look at the assurance part of that text. Martin Luther was not only a great theologian, he was one who mourned and grieved over the death of his 14-year-old daughter. It's an interesting story when she lay sick and about to die and he didn't know if she was going to live or die. Martin Luther prayed like any dad would. Oh God, oh God, please, I love her so much. Not my will, but your will be done. He would always end his prayers that way. And then he would go over to his daughter's deathbed and say, Dear sweet Magdalena, would you rather stay here on earth with daddy or would you rather go to be with your father in heaven? And she would always answer, As the Lord wills, Papa, as the Lord wills. Well, she did die. They laid her to rest. And at that service, Martin Luther said, Oh, my dear Magdalena, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. How strange to be so sorrowful and yet to know that all is at peace and that all is well. Very similar to the hymn writer who wrote that hymn at sea where his children died, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's sorrowing differently from people who are hopeless. So, if I were to answer that question that those three guys had to answer, you know, when you're in your casket and people are gathered around you, what's the one thing you want to hear people saying? It's not, he's moving. I don't want to hear that. I'd be, I don't want to come back. I don't want to hear he's moving. I want to hear something like, he's not moving, but he's really living right now. Because that will be the truth, baby Ruth. Our Heavenly Father, so many times Paul wrote, I don't want you to be ignorant, or I want you to know, or this we know. And when it comes to these eternal matters, though there's still that veil that we don't see here in the physical realm, in the temporal reality, yet 
The veil has been lifted by the Lord Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter, John, Isaiah, Ezekiel, others. So we can see and have confidence and not live in ignorance. Lord, as widespread as ignorance is about eternal matters, I pray that it would not be so among us. That we would know, and in knowing about our loved ones, and knowing what we might face even in our short-term future with this thing called death, that we would have hope and not hopelessness, a confident expectation of what is on the other side, that we're going to be conscious, we're going to be with you, present with you. And there's so much more. I just pray that you'd ready our hearts for the things we learn in the next several weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.